Well, hello there. Thanks for tuning in to the Raised by Whoops fake radio show. This is Andrew. I've got a little story I'm going to read to you today. But first, I want to say thank you so much for being here. Both Glenn and I are really, really grateful to have anyone listening to this at all. If you're enjoying it and not just doing us a favor, uh, you can do us one more favor and share it with a friend or share it with somebody you don't like and you're trying to figure out your relationship. doesn't matter to us. Just maybe tell somebody. And if you're really in the favor doing mood, you could go to Stitcher or Spotify or Apple Podcast and leave a review. Tell people what you think. You can send me and Greg, <laughs> Glenn, an email at raisedbywhoops.com. That's how you get in touch with us. If you have questions or if you've written a story that you would like to have published on the Raised by Whoops fake radio show, we'd like to share it, and unless it's no good or something. But I bet it's good, right? You're smart. You're listening to this show. You got good taste. You know how to tell a story. We want to hear it. Reach out. Tell us what you're thinking. Give us a review. Share with friends. All that sort of stuff. And enjoy this little story. I've titled it, Hang On, Diagnosis. It should come as no surprise. The day I nearly committed suicide, it was raining. Suicide is the wrong word, of course, as I had no intention of ending my own life. But you can count on the accuracy of that weather report. Rain makes everything more dramatic, doesn't it? This story, however, is not about self-harm or weather. And it's certainly not about accuracy. No, this is a story about the power of misunderstanding and the value of knowing one's limits. Setting the mood by hanging a distraction or two in the first paragraph just feels like the right move. After our parents divorced for the second and final time, my big sister and I spent every other weekend with our dad. Typically, we'd hang around his office after school for about an hour or so before he closed down for the weekend. One of my favorite things to do while waiting around for dad when I wasn't looking at dog-eared Playboy magazines in the upstairs bathroom was to listen to him on the phone. It didn't matter that I understood very little of what an attorney was meant to be doing. His phone calls were the best. Dad was a charmer with an agile mind, hilariously embracing irony, grave sincerity, and a sense of the absurd, often in the same sentence. I could hear people on the other end of his calls laughing out loud. Clients, other attorneys, judges, employees, you name it. My dad could make them laugh or piss them off entirely and often on the same call. I also liked his phone calls for the complicated fact that I disliked it when he spoke to me directly. I never knew what to say in return and he didn't seem to know what to say to me either. Hearing him speak so fluidly and comfortably with someone else was ideal. One of those Friday afternoons, I listened as dad spoke with an elderly female client. Her voice ambled from the speaker with a crackling and ancient southern drawl. Sounding to me like a primeval sea creature had crawled from the shores of Biloxi to politely ask for another pack of smokes. She was calling to talk about revising her last will and testament. The concept of a will was new to me, so I listened carefully. The old woman was expressing concerns about who exactly would be getting what after her death. Dad listened patiently as she explained, well, my sons are about as similar as shit and ice cream. I don't know about giving them both the same amount of cash. And my daughters, well, 
One of them only knows how to clean, so she should probably keep the house, but what about her filthy little sister? I was fascinated with the notion of designating specific gifts to just the right people without having to give them at all until they were no longer of use to the giver. Dad was unusually serious on the call, redirecting the sarcastic and playful tendencies of his regular phone persona to a series of silent facial expressions and hand motions. By means of eye rolls, pretending to jam a pencil into his ear, puffing up his cheeks to look like a monkey, the room itself filled in for the void created by the gravity of the conversation. Besides, the lady on the phone was doing all the heavy lifting in the comedy department. In spite of his silent silliness and her carefree tone, I gathered the business of giving things away after death was some heavy shit. I decided I would write my own will, and I got to it as soon as I got back home from the weekend with Dad. Being of reasonably sound mind and kinda small body, I bequeathed all of my toys to my friend Frank. Any cash I had on hand, as well as my bedroom, would benefit my big sister. My bicycle and my collection of squirt guns would go to my friend Andy, and so forth. The meager possessions of a ten-year-old may have been doled out in short order, but what the document lacked in scope and scale, it compensated for it with significance and concision. I was almost proud of myself for having been so thoughtful with my choices. I showed it to my mom, I showed it to my sister, and I showed it to my friends. Not surprisingly, I never showed it to my dad. There was something nice about being generous without having to actually part with anything. Two of my friends wrote their own wills, possibly sensing the same. As far as I know, theirs would cause them considerably less trouble than mine would end up causing me. Within a few days of having written this will of mine, the relative buzz of consequence-free altruism had faded, and I'd pretty much forgotten about it. I moved on, as I tend to do, and busied my mind with the madness of being a relatively new person. We were living with my mom and my stepdad in a neighborhood filled with families. Lots of kids our age lived nearby, and a number of tall, strong, and wild teenagers were living closer still. The kids we spent the most time with, the Bavier brothers, lived two houses down and one street over. Our backyards were connected by an unbroken expanse of unfenced land. It was a great situation for a bunch of energy-filled weirdos to burn off some sugar. I don't know if your experience with the weather was anything like mine, but as a child it generally came as a surprise. I must have had access to forecasts, and surely I could have asked an adult if they knew what the weather was going to be any given day, but I couldn't be bothered. I remember occasionally being handed a raincoat or told to grab my jacket. That was about the extent of my preparations. So when my sister, our friends, and I found ourselves goofing around outside and climbing the tree behind the Bavier's house, suddenly doused by a heavy rain, the party scampered off in the direction of the nearest living room. I stayed inside for just long enough to learn that the card game Uno was on deck for entertainment. I never did learn how to play that game. In fact, I still find card-based amusement to be one of the least amusing ways to spend my time. So I headed back outside to finish what I'd been working on in the climbing tree, preferring the indifferent chill of a little driving rain to the exasperating heat of consecutive losing hands. The Bavier brothers had been taking karate, and two of their super long, no longer needed white belts had been repurposed as a rope swing. Smart and industrious, the brothers had lashed the two belts together and were preparing to tie them around a sturdy branch when the rain sent us away. 
Fortunately, heavy and sudden rain in the south often lasts for only a few minutes, leaving everything wet but manageable. I climbed the slippery tree and set upon the task of making a rope swing without the overbearing guidance of several kids older and wiser than I was. Tying a sturdy knot around the branch was easy enough and was accomplished by shimmying out of my belly and making fast the knot at the point in the branch which was closest to the branch below. This would allow for some brave and or foolish kid to grab it, swing out, and hopefully swing back close enough to reach the branch from which you had just launched. Once my knot was secured, all I needed to do was climb back down to the launch site and tie a few fat knots along the length of the belt. But that would have been too easy, as it did not require any bravery and or stupidity. Instead, I opted for a much more complex and exciting method of getting back down, for what is the point of playing if not to taste a little excitement? From the upper branch, I fashioned a large slip knot in the belt. This created a nice big loop with a flat bit where I could stand. With my feet securely resting in the bottom of the loop, I could then drop down to the lower branch in the first and possibly most epic swing of the newly installed series of belts. Everything hinged on my feet remaining in the flat bit so it was crucial my grip was solid to prevent the knot from cinching around my feet. If all went well, I would gracefully swing myself back to the lower branch where I could reach out with a free hand to pull myself onto the launch site. I pictured Indiana Jones doing something similar with a whip, a hat, and a soundtrack. Although I had no hat, and a couple of wet karate belts were standing in for the whip, I could hear a song from Atlandos d'Amour by the police, drifting from where my sister and the brothers were playing cards. At least my soundscape was on the upswing. I scooted myself over where the knot was fastened, rested my feet on the flat bit of the belt, positioned myself to face the launch site, gripped the business end of the slipknot, then prepared to drop over the back of the branch and swing. One can occasionally identify moments when life offered two distinct possibilities, depending on one's choice at that bifurcation of reality. We find ourselves speculating on the wildly different outcomes one might have faced if, say, a left turn had been made instead of a right, or a no had replaced a yes. But these are only stories, tacked on after the fact of the unfolding moments of our lives. Immediately after each passing second of one's life, Possibility becomes fiction and actually paves over any forks in the road. With limited mechanical skills and no mind for geometry, I had no clue what sort of road I had foolishly chosen by sliding my feet into what would later look less like a misadventure in knot tying and more like the work of a hangman. As you've probably guessed, my plan was garbage. The moment my weight was accepted by the belt, the combination of worn-out shoes and plenty forward momentum caused me to slip through the wet fabric of the belt. My small hands were unable to stop the knot from being pulled tight, and I was quite suddenly stopped mid-fall as the belt violently tightened just under my ribs. The wind was knocked out of my lungs by the impact, and all of my weight was beginning to strangle me as the knot grew tighter. Doing my best to keep calm, I tried to swing my legs back and forth in an attempt to reach the launch site. Each movement of my legs made the knot burrow further into my rib cage. To this day, my xiphoid process, the little bone at the bottom of my sternum, 
is crooked from being broken by that drop. I tried to reach out with one hand for the lower branch, but when I released my grip I could feel the knot begin to tighten even further. I tried to climb back up the belt, but it was too wet and my small hands and arms were not up for the task. In short, I was fucked, dangling straight down from an uncharacteristically perfect knot. Panic began working its way into my mind. For the first time in my life I found myself afraid I might die. I was struggling to breathe. I worried if I screamed out for help, I might not be able to refill my lungs with air. I thought of what I'd been told about crucifixion, and how one of the ways it killed a man was by causing him to suffocate. They spared old Jesus from death by suffocation by stabbing him in the ribs from the ground with a long spear so he could bleed to death instead. I would later find myself thinking a great deal about the two others to his left and right, who were not so fortunate as they slowly died from a painful and terrifying lack of oxygen. A new empathy for the sinner would find a welcome home in my chest. In either case, I didn't want to die at the end of a spear, and I especially did not want to die at the end of a karate belt. Panic won the day. I risked it all on screaming for help, keeping the small muscles of my stomach as tight as I could to take the pressure off my lungs, gripping the belt with all my strength. I shouted out a pathetic and somewhat muted cry for help over and over again. It was like trying to run in a dream, the volume of my voice caught up in bedsheets of asphyxiation. My sister and our friends could not hear me over the loud music, which must have been doing wonders to make their endless card games seem tolerable. It never occurred to me that Indiana Jones wasn't aware of his soundtrack. I wish I'd been so fortunate as no one should have to face suffocation with Sting singing about a prostitute he's rather presumptuously trying to rescue. My mom later said she heard yelling, but thought it was just us playing around. After what felt like an eternity of raw and frantic horror, I saw the figure of a teenager leaping over a fence, then running across the uninterrupted expanse of Mississippi mud and weeds which connected the neighboring yards. When he reached me, he placed my feet in his hands and told me to stand up. I did exactly that, releasing the tension from the knot and slipping it over my body. I would have fallen to the ground from there had he not caught me on the way down. Once my breathing slowed from panicked gulps to mildly crazed wheezing, the young man gently helped me to my feet. Noticing that I was wincing from the pain in my chest, he asked if I was okay. I said I was, but I obviously didn't mean it. I looked him in the eyes and thanked him for saving me. He patted my shoulder, saying, you'll be all right. With an undignified and lumbering hobble, like a wounded animal seeking its den, I shambled back to the safety of my home. I never saw him again. Within a few months of rescuing me, that young man would lose his own life in a tragic car crash. I was told he died with a portion of the car's engine resting in his lap as the vehicle slowly burned, killing one of his friends as well. It happened less than a mile from where he plucked me from that tree. When I got the news, my heart was broken, and I felt a strange guilt. I had nightmares for weeks. I can only hope he died instantly and was not made to suffer the additional pain of having his cries for help go unanswered. He deserved that, at least. When I told my mom what had just happened, she read something between the lines of my story which I had no intention of writing. Shell-shocked by a runaway daughter's fragile mental condition, 
distraught by another child's cold shoulder, Mom saw reality through a lens I still cannot envision. To those loving and compassionate eyes, my childish last will and testament read like a suicide note. A sensitive kid would rather play in the rain outside than consistently lose card games inside, looked depressed and isolated at being left out. And of course, I would imagine the most alarming feature to her eyes, a comically botched rope swing wore the violent garb of a noose. Within a month, I would find myself under the care of a psychiatrist. I'm not sure which hurt more, the fact that people I trusted thought I was suicidal or how dumb they must have thought I was for so badly botching a hanging. I hadn't the vocabulary or sufficient command over my native tongue to convince any adult of the scope of misunderstanding we were all facing. The shrink prodded and examined me like a germ under a microscope, interrogating every aspect of my life for signs of virulence or illness. He became fixated on a particular story I told him about my older brother. My memory was of my brother putting me in the large, round, black case used for his bass drum, closing it around me and rolling me down a flight of stairs. In reality, my brother had, in fact, put me in that bass drum case at the top of the stairs, but walked next to it as it went safely down to the landing, rolling it with just enough speed to make it exciting, but not so fast that I might be injured. The distinction seemed subtle, but the ramifications of getting that one little detail of the story wrong were disastrous, particularly for my brother. He was made to feel like a monster. This would add to his resentment of and detachment from our mother, his suspicion of me and who knows what other forms of mental anguish. I was made to feel like a science experiment, tested, diagnosed, and observed for changes and possible tendencies toward self-harm. also felt like a terrible brother. I was, again, slipping my feet into the wet belt and leaping from the wrong branch, only verbally this time. Where before I'd been happily oblivious to any hidden meanings behind my own motivations, I became decidedly suspicious of them. A distrust in myself was crafted and then amplified, then dwarfed by my suspicions of adults. A deep desire to avoid being misunderstood became the very thing which made being understood properly much less likely. Ultimately, I felt like mine was a damaged personality. It was implied my only hope for remedy was to subject myself to the whims and diagnoses of people I did not like or trust. Medication, fortunately, was never prescribed. I cannot overstate the impact this had on my development as a person. While I was profoundly changed by the terrifying act of accidentally hanging myself, and not just because near death tends to hit the fast forward button on one's perspective, it was the ensuing period of diagnosis and analysis which was most impactful. I found myself for the first time feeling self-conscious. Simone de Beauvoir said, Self-consciousness is not knowledge, but a story one tells about oneself. I believe that to be true, but I also know the difference between being self-conscious and being self-aware. When I think of those desperate moments in that tree, I'm reminded of this lesson in a powerful and clearly illustrated way. While being self-conscious requires tacking on a story to explain ourselves, self-awareness demands a great and sometimes brutal honesty. The brutal honesty here is simple. Foolishness comes as naturally to me as breathing. I've learned in order to counter potentially life-threatening lapses in concentration, I need to pay more attention to what I'm doing, 
The difficult bit has been deciding what deserves special attention and what does not. Sometimes I choose wisely, often I don't. Of course, regardless of our choices, fate has its own cold and indifferent say in the matter. Sometimes the sun shines and all is well. Other times you nearly hang to death in a tree you climb for fun. One day you're saving a life, another you die horribly in a tragic and pointless accident. And just when you think you've written something incorruptible and generous, innocence gives way to ignorance, and you land in inescapably deep shit. In any case, you live, you choose, and you react, knowing folly or glory are but one choice away, and subject to an interconnected web of choices, good, bad, and not always yours. It is also worth remembering, no matter how we present ourselves, the odds of being horribly misunderstood are not small, because the number of things each of us does not understand is great. In fact, being misunderstood may be one of the few things in life any of us can count on reliably. So I'll take a breath now, a deep one in fact, to see if I can taste a little gratitude in the air, eyes peeled for the next misstep, stumbling over wild moments, savoring the myth of possibility because it reads like good fiction, only keeping score of actually because it reads like cold history. And when all else fails, I hope I'll know when to belt out with all I've got, one last cry for help. Thanks for tuning in to the Raised by Whoops fake radio show. This is Glenn. Both Andrew and I are grateful for your time and attention. If you enjoyed that story, we'd appreciate if you could tell your friends, family, or even a few strangers about the show. Additionally, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. If you have a short story you'd like us to tell, or even some music you'd like to share, you can reach out via the website raisedbywhoops.com. We're glad to have you with us. Until next time, thanks, and take care.